My good people, greetings, what is happening, what is going on? Hope your Monday's off to a fantastic start as we close out not only the month of March, but the first quarter of 2019 already here on the J Reels Podcast, bringing you everything that's going on in the world of sports. This is your host, J Reels. For those listening for the very first time, getting a chance to download and listen to what it is I have to say about the world of sports, I welcome you guys aboard. And for those who've been with me, I welcome you guys back. Monday, March the 25th, the New York Lord 2019, as we go through this universe, whether it's MLB opening day on Thursday, we understand that the season began in Japan last week with Seattle and Oakland, but in earnest, stateside, it all kicks off. The curtain raises on this Major League Baseball season Thursday. We'll go into some MLB over-under win totals. Also, the Mike Trout contract, $430 million. I understand it's been just about a week since it's happened, but you'll get my take on that. No surprise. You're not going to really hear anything groundbreaking from what it is I have to say about him. But that, the NBA, as we get into the final couple of weeks of their season, as well as the NHL. Also, what's happening in the NFL. We'll wrap up some news regarding Rob Gronkowski, who announced his retirement yesterday. Some other uh, NFL news and notes, some tidbits. But we're going to start off with what else? The tournament, March Madness in full effect. We are now down to the Sweet 16 after a crazy weekend, which, let's face it, let's just cut right to the chase. It has not been a sexy weekend for the tournament. We get that there's going to be a handful of games, and we'll get into some of those. But when you look at the Thursday and Saturday slate, pretty much you could just go to bed and wake up the next day and say, huh, what did I miss? And you didn't miss anything. And I hate to say it that way, but the tournament, you're going to get those upsets. You're going to get those type of games where it's going to go down to the wire, especially with the big teams, Duke in particular. But when you look at it from a whole, from these first four days, the games that stick out, you're going to look at John Morant's performance against Marquette and what they did. Although they bowed out, of course, in their next game. And then you're going to look at Duke and what happened there yesterday, which will certainly dissect those last uh, 15 seconds of the game. And we have Oregon getting back to a Sweet 16, albeit beating UC Irvine, who upset Kansas State. You're going to look at that. Wofford finally winning a tournament game, even though it was at the expense of a local team here at Seton Hall. St. John's was awful in their playing game against Arizona State. But on a whole, and I'm sorry, for those who shake the college basketball pom-poms, it's not a great weekend. It's pretty much chalk when you look at it in a whole. But you do have some very intriguing games here to chew on. Of course, the two games, I'll start with this first one. And both of those games took place yesterday. When you had Tennessee who looked like they were going to cruise to a victory against Iowa. And they let Iowa back into the game. They stormed back from a 21-point halftime deficit. They were up as much as 25. And then it had to, you had to go to overtime, where even in the overtime, you had a feeling that Tennessee somehow, some way, in that those first 30 seconds to a minute, you're going to see how it's going to turn out. And sure enough, they scored the first seven points of the overtime, and they cruised to a victory. Which would have been... Disheartening to say the least because Tennessee was a top-ranked team all year. They are ranked two in their bracket. And for them to squander that type of lead, you kind of wondered what the psyche was going to be like going into that overtime. And when you look at those first, I'll say first minute, 30 seconds is a little bit too quick, but with them scoring those seven points to start off the overtime, sigh of relief 
were able to, I don't want to say decompress, but they were able to relax a little bit and know that they were going to cruise into a victory there against the feisty Buckeyes. But be that as it may, or Hawkeyes, excuse me, I'm thinking Ohio State. But be that as it may, Tennessee survives and they move on to the next round. But everybody's going to talk about what happened in the final seconds of the Duke-Central Florida game. Well, let's face it. If you wake up this morning and you're Central Florida, you're sick to your stomach. Because I know you could probably look at the ref for one instance where Zion Williamson at 76-73 makes the layup. And Taco Falls, we all know the guy's a giraffe. And I thought he played the ball and played Williamson as best as he possibly could. Was there contact? Absolutely. Now, of course, Williamson, as he was going to the basket, he was the one leaning into Taco Fall. And Falls just had his arms up, pretty much stationary, didn't swat down. I mean, the guy's a monster. So if he would have leaped just maybe an inch and the contact was made, you probably could have called a foul there. But that was just a poor call by the officials at that juncture of the game. Because once Williamson went up, and the contact was made. The ball went through the hoop and through the net. And then the whistle was blown. Oh, what's up with that? So now Williamson's going to the free throw line at 76-75 for the tie. And then Williamson misses the free throw. Barrett gets the rebound, lays it up and in with about 11 seconds to go. Wisely, CF had a timeout in their back pocket. So they call a timeout. The inbounds pass goes to the point guard, Taylor. He goes to the basket, had a nice look, high off the glass, and then storming in pretty much out of nowhere was Aubrey Dawkins, who comes in for the tip, and the tip, it looks like it's about to go in, and it just rolls right out. And pretty much the hopes of one of the bigger upsets in recent tournament history goes out the window for the Central Florida team. And I, let me tell you something. I was distraught. Because that would have been just a brutal loss for Duke. But it's even more of a brutal loss for Central Florida. Considering how well they played. Considering how they got robbed. Let's just face it. Of that play. And then listen. Barrett makes the putback. You give it up for him. Johnny on the spot. Heads up play. We get that. But that shouldn't have been a foul. That should have been 76-74. They'd have the ball. We don't know what's going to happen then, but chances are, you would think, that CF will hang on for the victory and move on to the Sweet 16, and then Duke goes home, which would have been one of the more disappointing losses in their school's history. But Zion and company live to see another day. And just a tough break. I mean, what could you say? Just a tough break for those kids down there in Central Florida. And then when you look at some of the other games over the weekend, you know, LSU had to scratch and claw to win that game against Maryland late where they got the layup there with 1.6 seconds left to go. And then the other story that's going to come out, or has come out, I should say, with the whole Michigan State deal with Tom Izzo scolding Aaron Henry, obviously wasn't getting back on defense, lollygagging, and he got in his face. And I understand it caused a big ruckus and a big scene and Izzo has every right to do that. I mean, he didn't pull a Bobby Knight where he grabbed him by the jersey or smacked him in the back of the head or threw a chair at him. But of course, in this day and age, they're going to look at the behavior of a coach like that on the sideline and they're going to berate him from pillar to post. They're going to say, hey, that was inexcusable. There's no way you're going to treat a kid like that. Uh, listen, 
It's the NCAA tournament. I'm trying to win here. You know, this isn't a game in January against uh, Minnesota. It's not for all the marbles. I get that, but you want to advance. So to me, I didn't think Izzo was out of line. I know a lot of people came out and just blasted him as far as the way he conducted himself. I don't think it was over the top or over overboard for any stretch. But at the same time, we, we could see that in instances, whether the camera's in the dugout or on an NFL sideline. And you'll see that. And at the end of the day, it's no big deal. It's either coach on coach, player on player, or player on coach in this particular case. And that's it. You look at that and move on. To make a big deal about it was, to me, it was not you know much to do about nothing. And they made such a... I just didn't understand it. But then you have these games here over the weekend, and then, you know, Kentucky, they ended up being Wofford, and Wofford, as I mentioned earlier, with Seton Hall being the local team, and them not being able to advance against a school that has never won a game in the tournament. Obviously highlighted by Fletcher McGee and his three-point prowess, but his three-point prowess, unfortunately, that clock struck 12, and to the tune of zero for 12, in that game against Kentucky. So just highlighting some of the events over the weekend. And, and again, you didn't have any major implications as far as upsets are concerned. Obviously, you had the K-State losing. You know, we get that. I understand John Morant beating Marquette. It was a 5-12. You get a lot of 5-12 upsets in the tournament. So as much as it's a... You raise an eyebrow, but it, again, it's not a 314. It's certainly not a 215 or even 116 for that matter. You know, in Virginia, how about them? In their first round, being down at the half to Gardner Webb, I'm sure they were thinking, oh boy, here we go again. But they ride it in the ship. They played well. They bounced back. And here they are in the Sweet 16. And even Iona, another local team, with a halftime lead. There on Friday. And funny enough, that was the first time in tournament history that you had two 16 seeds have halftime leads against the number one. Even though nobody will care because it's not as if those 16s ended up winning the game, but the bottom line is, is that the gap between the one and 16 doesn't seem to be as big as it once was. Now, it's still big when you talk about playing two halves, but it's not guaranteed that once they come out of opening tip, that the game's going to be 40-10 to 10, you know, in the first half. So these teams do hang around and make it somewhat competitive but haven't been able to pull off the miracle unlike last year when Virginia went exit stage right in that first round, as we all know. Now, we look at uh, these games ahead. And John Morant, yes, no NBA decision just yet. Obviously, he wasn't going to talk about that as... That was one of the first things asked him upon their loss there on Saturday. But now as we look ahead to Thursday and Friday, can't talk about Saturday and Sunday just yet. We don't know what's going to happen there. But you have Florida State and Gonzaga. Florida State has been a great showing here. I know a lot of people have picked them. I even picked them as far as uh, making the Final Four. Can't forget Villanova. Now they have to come to mind. Villanova, you know, they lose to Purdue. I thought that they would actually have one last run in them, but they certainly didn't. In this case, they were... Two and done after beating St. Mary's there on Thursday. But you have Florida State Gonzaga, which is your first game there Thursday, followed by Purdue and Tennessee, Texas Tech, Michigan, and Oregon, Virginia. And then before we even get into that, Friday, 
you'll wrap that up with four games, starting off with LSU and Michigan State, Auburn, North Carolina, Vatek and Duke, and then Houston, Kentucky. And my Final Four is still pretty much intact other than Villanova. I have Duke, Kentucky, and Florida State going to a Final Four, which could still happen, but obviously lots could take place between now and then. But when you look at these games here, as we all know in this tournament, and I would think that it's going to be a lot better this weekend because when you look at some of these upsets and when you look at teams in the past that have made these runs, whether it's George Mason in 2006 or even VCU a few years back, what was it, 2011, when they played Butler? You know, you have a lot of these teams that when they make these runs and then they finally get to play these behemoths of college basketball, that's when all their ugly warts come up to roost. You look at them and you say, oh, geez, they don't even belong in the same building, let alone the same court. Now, we get that there are times where they'll make it to a Final Four. And then at that point, with the whole world watching, that's when you watch the most ugliest basketball you've ever seen. But this time around, other than Oregon, who's the only double-digit seed that's remaining, and that's only because they played UC Irvine. But Oregon, as we all know, now again, much different team than they have been in the past, but they've made Final Fours and they've made decent runs. But do they have one in them to make it to an Elite Eight or even a Final Four? And listen, Virginia... As great as they played this year and they got off to a very slow start in that first game against Gardner-Webb, you would think Virginia says, "Uh uh-uh, not this time around. But I would think these games are going to be a lot more thrilling. You know, you have a lot of 1-4 matchups and a lot of 2-3 matchups here over the course of this upcoming weekend. You know, Michigan, all these teams are pretty much worthy of making it to the Final Four. You know, you don't have a ton of seeds. I mean, think about this. You look at the Thursday games. Obviously, Gonzaga's a one, Florida State's a four. Purdue and Tennessee are three and two, respectively. Michigan, Texas Tech are two and three. Virginia's a one, and we talked about Oregon. And then on Friday, you pretty much got the same deal. Michigan State LSU is a two, three. Auburn, who beat Kansas, to one, five. Duke and Vatek, one, four. And Kentucky Houston's a two, three. So all these teams, I'm not going to say they're evenly matched, but would you be surprised that any one of these seeds or any one of these teams come out, whether it's Houston or Kentucky, Florida State, whatever it is, whatever team it may be, even Oregon for that matter, coming out of their regions and making it to a Final Four? I don't think so. You're not going to be surprised. And I understand it's not going on on them either. You know, People are going to say, oh, Jay Reels, please. Of course, when you get to this stage, all right, we understand that, but... When you have those seeds very close, and we understand the NFL is a crapshoot, you get that. But even in the NBA, you know, an ATB to one in the first round, and it has happened, not as often, but generally after that Cinderella first round victory when they upset the one, next round they're out. They're not making it to a conference final, let alone get past the semifinal. Only the Knicks did that back in 99 when they were an eight seed and they waited all the way to an NBA final. So even though you get past that first stage, it's getting the second and third and beyond. Where here, college basketball, we all know it's one and done. Any one of these teams can move forward. Do I think the games will be exciting? Listen, I can't tell you whether or not they're going to be exciting. 
what team is going to be the Cinderella. I mean, the Cinderella right now is Oregon, as we know, because they're what they are, a 12 seed. But besides that, any of those other teams can make it. And I could break down these games, and I could say to you, uh, of course, you know, I think North Carolina is going to win because they're a one seed. Please, you know, you think Auburn can't put up a good fight in this game? I would think you were going to see a couple of these games go down to the wire, and you're going to wonder, you know, who's going to come out on top. But the fascinating thing is, is that when I talked about it last week, as far as the storylines, Duke being one and Zion one A, they dodged the missile there yesterday. And because of the four freshmen that are on the floor and not having that elder statesman, that senior, you know, the Chris Duhans of the past, you know, guys like that are on the team, you kind of wonder, although they may have dodged that missile, will they be able to do something like that again, but against a more quality of opponent? That's not to knock by any stretch UCF because they certainly were deserving. But right, now as they're getting deeper into the tournament pool, you kind of wonder, will they be able to pull out a game like that come Friday or even come Sunday? Remains to be seen. So I think your storylines here are still 1-1-A with Duke and Zion. You want to say which number one is going to get knocked off here? Can it be Virginia? Can it be Gonzaga? NC? You know, which one, you know, one number one is going to be left standing? And Oregon, what do they have in them? Considering if you re-rank the teams 1 through 16, I'm sure they would be right there at the bottom. So that's what you're looking at here as you move forward to a Sweet 16 and Elite 8 weekend as we get closer to crowning a champion in college basketball. All right, I know baseball's in the air. It's coming, just three days away. But I want to get into some football stuff. And I get it that everybody's probably footballed out with all the free agency and the teams that have uh, made all these deals, whether you're the Cleveland Browns, Oakland Raiders, et cetera, et cetera. We get all that. But football, I just want to touch on a couple of things, and one being the retirement of Rob Gronkowski. Now, even his agent has said that, hey, you never know. He could always come back at some point. Now, Gronkowski is the type of guy who saved a lot of his money. So despite the fact you probably see him out in the party circuit, And who knows, right now he's probably on a beach somewhere with a shirt off, guzzling down God knows what. But he certainly hasn't lived in excess, which is good. Good for him, because you don't want players living well above their means. And you also have a situation where he's been beat up. He's been slowing down as a player, although he could be the NFL's biggest decoy, or the Pats' biggest decoy in this case. But why pay another $8, $9 million a year when you're going to have a player who's certainly on the decline? but can also be effective in those key spots of certain games as you saw in the Super Bowl last year or just two months ago. But with that being said, Gronkowski, I'm sure for him, he waffled back and forth. It was a tough decision, and I can understand rightfully so. He'll be 30 this year. To think that his football life is, for all intents and purposes, over, and I would think the dominant Gronk is certainly a thing of the past, but you got to give it up to him. The guy was... Let's face it, he's not the best tight end of all time. I know Stephen A, and if people think I have it, have it out for Stephen A, I don't. I actually like him, but he comes out with the most stupidest comments, saying that, oh, I don't believe he's the best ever. Of course not. Gronkowski is not the best tight end ever. You could name three or four off the top of your head, whether it's Tony Gonzalez, 
You can throw Shannon Sharp, although he's more of a wide receiver. Jason Witten, Kellen Winslow. I mean, those are guys that are going to come to right to the forefront of your mind as far as better tight end than Gronkowski. But for a guy of his size and his speed, strength, etc., there probably wasn't a more dominant tight end than Rob Gronkowski because he was dominant. And in my book, I listen, I hate the Pats. I can't stand them. Gronk has killed my team over the years. But if you ask me right now, is he a lock Hall of Famer? Absolutely. And people could say, oh, well, look at the stats. He only has X amount of catches. He only has a certain amount of touchdowns, whatever. But the guy was dominant. I mean, I'm sorry. If you think he was not, then what were you watching? I don't have all the numbers in front of me. And I get that he had a lot of injuries. And, but the Hall of Fame, let's face it, Terrell Davis made it into the Hall of Fame. And I got nothing against him. And I thought he was dominant. Granted, he only had 6,000, what was it, almost 7,000 rushing yards. But he had three or four years where he was the best running back in the league. He was an MVP, rushed for 2,000 yards, Super Bowl MVP at that. And granted that it was fleeting. And certainly he doesn't rank up with the guys like Walter Payton, Emmitt Smith, Barry Sanders, Eric Dickerson, Jim Brown, dare I say. No, he's not in that class. But for that short period of time... And would I have put Terrell Davis in? I wouldn't have. But he was dominant. And is he deserving? You probably have to put him in there. And Gronkowski had more of a much longer career than Terrell Davis did. And I get two different positions. More taxing on the running back. We get that. But Gronkowski was dominant and a Hall of Famer. Unlike Julian Edelman, which I talked about in podcasts previously, and anybody wants to argue with me on that, you can hit me up on any of my social media accounts because if not, you just have to go back. If anything, just go back to the post-Super Bowl recap where I talked about Edelman not being a Hall of Famer despite the fact that he was the MVP and I understand he has he's second all-time in playoff receiving, yard, receiving yards, et cetera, but no. Let's not even go there and talk about Edelman being a Hall of Famer because he's not. Gronkowski, yes. So big hit for the Pats. How are they going to replace that guy? Hey, listen. They could put me at tight end, and with that system, I'm sure I'll flourish. They're not going to miss a beat. I think they'll be fine. Listen, the Pats are the Pats because of the coach and the quarterback. As long as they're there, they're going to continue winning. So that's what you have with Gronk. As far as, I'm going to get to Ben Roethlisberger just for a hot minute, and I get people can say, oh boy, here we go. Jay, you know, Jay Reel's going to go off the rails now and talk about Steelers again. The only reason why I bring up Roethlisberger is because what's going to be fascinating is his next press conference, wherever that's going to be, whenever that's going to be, because he certainly has some explaining to do. That's right, explaining, not explaining, explaining. When you look at the Sports Illustrated article and even the interview that he did with, I believe, Jenny Venters, which is actually on SI, and I watched the whole thing, it's like 25 minutes, where he pretty much came out and said, yeah, Ben wants to win, but he wants to win his way. And Ben wasn't really much of a, I'm not going to say he wasn't a team guy, but Ben was the type of guy who is more closer to his offensive lineman than he was with some of the other personnel on the team. And you heard that from Antonio Brown, not in those words. And the same thing goes for the former running back. Now, the two things that I would love to ask Ben in this particular case is... Has he rubbed, or does he feel like he's rubbed these guys the wrong way that pretty much have forced their own exits? 
because we know he's close with Pouncey. We know the center and he have a very special bond, as well as a lot of the guys on the offensive line, because those are the guys that protect him. But when you look at these two guys, in particular the former All Pros, and what they've said here in recent weeks, it makes you question what type of relationship did he have with them. I get that you're not going to have guys night out all the time, or you're not going to have them over, just like Antonio Brown said. I only went to Ben's house once. Nobody says that you have to host dinners two or three nights a week over the course of their careers while they were in Pittsburgh together. But it does say something for them on the field, whether it's practice during training camp or during the regular season or whatever it may be. And Ben needs to answer to that. Because the other thing is, and I love Ben. Listen, how can you not love him if you're a Steeler fan? And despite him being the face of the franchise, you know, he's not bigger than the team. But sadly, when you have Kevin Colbert, the GM, coming out saying that, hey, he could come to me and he could say whatever it is he wants to me. He's won two Super Bowls. Well, guess what? You're the GM. You're the boss. You can't give a player that much carte blanche, despite the fact that he's on your Mount Rushmore of Steeler history. You just can't all of a sudden just think that, hey, he could just run amok and do whatever he wants or treat his players the way he you know, he feels like, oh, I can treat them because I've won two Super Bowls and I've been here for 15 years. All right, we get that there's a level of, I don't want to just, just say loyalty, but there's a level of respect and a level that you get when you're on a team for that long. But again, you're not bigger than the team. And hopefully, despite the fact that even Morgan Burnett is another guy that's also leaving town because they felt that he was a guy in the locker room. I don't want to say that he was a virus by any stretch of the imagination, but he signed there for a couple of years and there was another guy uh, out of here. So now they feel like they want to try to get their vibe back moving forward. And what does that mean now that these guys are out and it's Ben's team? Well, he's got a lot to say here over the course of whatever it is that he's going to, whenever he comes out, whether it's OTAs or minicamp or after the draft, whatever it may be. And they're in the process of reworking his deal. And let's face it, he's only going to be here for another two years tops. He's got next year. I figure two years after that, and that's it. You got to start looking for your next quarterback. Who knows if it's on the roster now? Is it Mason Rudolph? Is it Josh Dobbs? I, I couldn't tell you. But they need to start looking at that also. And no offense to Ben, but it's a business. Same situation with Eli. So it's going to be fascinating to see what he has to say about all this. Hopefully sooner than later, because I'll be fascinated to hear. And Ben is the type of guy where he's pretty much vanilla. He's not going to give you much. He's going to say, hey, I like those guys. I thought we had a working relationship. I always thought AB was the hardest work. He's probably going to say the right things and... Take the high road. I don't think he's going to bash any of those guys. But you just wonder and hope that whenever those guys in Pittsburgh depressed, they grill him. The relationship with Colbert, do you feel like you, you know, you do have 52 kids under you? Do you treat them a certain way? Do you treat everybody? I mean, I want to hear it. And as far as player movement, Clay Matthews and Blake Bortles both signed with the Rams. I don't know how much Matthews has left, but you're pretty much swapping out Damakong Sue for Matthews. Now, we understand that Matthews is a linebacker and Sue is a defensive tackle, but 
You got that swap there. And how about Vontez Perfect? To no surprise, if there was one team in the league that he was going to go to once the Bengals let him go, of course it's going to be Oakland. And he's going to reunite there with Antonio Brown, and they've already, I guess, tweeted or had a minor chat, kind of buried the hatchet with everything. If you go back to that wild card game back in 2016, the hit over the middle, which pretty much led to the winning field goal in advance in a game that the Bengals should have, I mean, had no business losing. But that's the Bengals under the Marvin Lewis tenure. They couldn't win in a big spot. So Burfitt goes there as they try to revamp their defense, especially after the trade last year with Khalil Mack. And that's pretty much it there with the NFL. Now baseball is just days away. I'm sure everybody's rejoicing. The weather in the Northeast is going to get a little bit better. We're going to reach the upper 50s and maybe even low 60s by the weekend. So everybody who's been dying for some warm weather, and we actually had some nice weather here yesterday for those who care. But as far as the baseball is concerned, I'm going to have a baseball preview on Tuesday. I'm sorry, on Wednesday, which will be posted up on Thursday morning. So for those who get their baseball fix and wondering what it is that I have to say about the baseball season, you'll hear all that on Thursday. I haven't reached out to my uh, fellow guys. I know it's been kind of a crazy couple weeks here, Scott and Jerome, to do a Met preview. I'm going to see if I can do that. If that doesn't happen, I'll have them on at some point during the season to talk Mets. And even Yankees, too. I get that, especially Yankees, because obviously they have a big year ahead of them, considering that right now, let's face it, if you had to pick who's going to be the division winner in the AL East, it'd probably be the Yankees. Because the Red Sox, who is your closer since Kimbrell hasn't signed anywhere for that matter, although there's been rumors about him maybe signing with the Brewers. But as of this second, Kimbrell is unemployed. But as far as the baseball season is concerned, the over-under numbers, and I've been awful with my over-unders, whether it's the NFL, even the NBA. NBA's actually been worse this year. As of right now, I think I'm on pace just to have one team win, and that's the Nuggets at 47.5 as an over. But when we look at the numbers here, And generally what I do is I pick six teams. I like to do split down the middle, three overs, three unders, but who knows? I may just switch it up this time if it's going to be four and two over to under. We'll see. But locally, well, the highest number, let's start here. The highest number in baseball right now is the Houston Astros. Astros, that number is 97.5. So, of course, the over-under is that if you were to bet in Las Vegas or even in Jersey, if you go out and one of the sports books out there and say, hey, I'm going to put $100 on the Astros going over. I don't know what their odds are, but if that's your bet, then fine. If you feel like they're not an over, you pick the under. So that's how that works. Red Sox are at 95 and a half. Dodgers at 95. Yankees, 94 and a half. Indians, 91 and a half. So those are the teams. There's only five teams in baseball that are over 90. You have the Cubs at 89, which that's an interesting pick. Hmm. Cubs at 89. Now listen, now the Cubs, obviously they've been very good over the last four or five years. Last year they lost the NL Central on that last day of the season, or the 163rd game, I should say, against the Brewers. And then remember they lost to Colorado in the wildcard game. But them as a 89, that's a very interesting number. Cardinals 88.5, Nationals 88.5, Rays 85.5. Braves at 84, 
considering they won a division last year. Twins 84, Angels 83.5, Brewers 83.5, Mets 83.5, Brewers 83.5. Wow, they actually have them coming down that much. Oakland 83, Philly, that's right, the Philadelphia Phillies 83, number to look at. Colorado 82, and then after that you have the teams that are in the 70s. Pirates 78.5, San Diego 77.5 even with Manny Machado. Arizona 77, Red 77. Wow, a lot of these numbers down. I mean, Arizona was on the cusp of making the playoffs last year. And look at that, 77. Now, again, no Goldschmidt, of course. Uh, Toronto 76 and a half, Seattle. And the worst, believe it or not, it's not even the Marlins. Marlins 65 and a half. I actually skipped, you know, Texas and Kansas City, Detroit, San Francisco, Chicago. Baltimore Orioles at 59. Interesting numbers. But we'll talk about the Mets and Yankees real quick. Mets 83 and a half. Now, with the Mets... They're never going to hover around that number. They're either going to be well above that or well below it. And that's all there is to it. And the Yankees at 94.5, if they were 100 last year and their bullpen is just as solid, we understand they got some guys on the DL to start the year. We know about Didi, Hicks, Severino, big parts of their team. But again, they have tons of reinforcements. They have a lineup that's killer. And they have a bullpen that's, if not killer more than their Offensive lineup is concerned. So I think the Yankees will be fine. You certainly can't worry about what they're going to do. I think that's a number they'll probably go over. I'm not going to pick them come Thursday. But nevertheless, Yankees are in for a big year in the Mets. Mets are hit and miss, I tell you. And I've digested them a little bit and what they've done. And, you know, with that said, let me segue to this with Jacob DeGrom before I even get to Trout. So the Mets have this pitcher who is coming off one of the more dominant seasons in the last generation plus. A guy that's two years away from free agency. And hey, listen, that's how the system works. We get that. And I came on here weeks ago saying that, yes, although the system with the way it is, he can't do anything about it. It's not as if, right, he could request a trade, but the Mets could say, oh, no, we got you on the books for two more years. You just got to have to grin and bear it. But then knowing that it would be in the right interest for the organization, and I said this before, Sale got re-signed here recently, 5 for 150, and Verlander got an extension, 2 for 66. I said this well before that, and I'll say it again. If the Mets were going to have any, to their fan base first and foremost, and to the players on their team. And I understand it should be the players on the team first and foremost because those are the ones that they need to support and those are the ones that they need to show and prove that, hey, we're in this for the long haul. But for the fan base, even more so because, listen, we're as jaded and as cynical as we could possibly be. But come on now. If you see what's happening in Boston and in Houston, the Wilpons, you got less than 72 hours to get cracking on a deal where you could show your fan base and your organization that you mean business for a guy who, at 30 years old, if you wipe out those last two years and you just give him smack five-year deal, and you say, all right, we're not going to give you 150, but we're going to give you five or 140 or whatever it is, maybe just a smidge below sale, I'm sure. Or even just throw it at 150. Just throw it on the table. Match sales contract. You mean to tell me that Jake's not going to sign that? You mean to tell me that he's going to frown 
and look at that and say, you know what? Uh Uh-uh, that's not enough. Where knowing at 30 years old, and although he still has a lot of bullets left in that arm, considering that he had a Tommy John and he was a late bloomer, there is no way on God's green earth that if you're going to offer him that kind of contract that he's going to walk away from it. And not only that, but that will tell your fan base, oh, we mean business. Oh, okay, great. Because when you have Noah Syndergaard coming out and saying how he hasn't been extended, pretty much telling the organization, hey, what are you waiting for? Get him signed. And I believe that was his quote, get him signed. Because I'm sure Syndergaard's going to think, well, when I become a free agent, am I going to have to go through the same process a year or two out? What if Noah has a killer season this year or he has the Cy Young type season? Is he going to have to look to his agent and say, should we find another team? When his time is up. And not only that, to go into to get into the whole Brody Van Wagenen dynamic, his agent of last year before he became the GM. And I get it that you're wearing a different set of shoes here, my guy, but let's face it. Let's go ahead and get this guy signed. Get the offer out tomorrow. You know, why the Mets are playing in Baltimore today is beyond me. And then after that, they're gonna go to Syracuse before they come back to Washington, which is also ridiculous. And I know Noah got on the organization for that, saying that, hey, why can't we at least stop off in New York, home, before we take the trip down to Washington? Well, it's the Mets, so it doesn't come to me as a surprise why that hasn't been taken care of. But the Mets need to get their heads out of their rear ends and get this thing solved. Because, right, it's not going to be talked about much. And if Jacob DeGrom's smart, if the first question come March 28th, if he goes out there and he pitches... Let's say he goes seven innings, one run, two hit ball, and the Mets lose two to one because he's going up against Max Scherzer, and it's here we go again all over 2018, just like it was last year. You know, the questions are going to be coming fast and furious as to, is the contract on your mind? I understand you can't talk about it now, but what do you think? It's going to be nonstop. So all I could say here, if you're the Met franchise the organization, the higher-ups, just get it done. I understand they're going to say, oh, it's no rush. Oh, we got two years. Oh, let's see how he plays out this year, whatever. No, just give him the money now. Sign, seal, delivered. So your fan base could just breathe a sigh of relief. Your starting pitcher could breathe a sigh of relief. And then there won't be any controversies down the road because you just know that if it's August and the Mets are out of it, I could already see the agent's going to come out and say, no, we want to protect his arm. Let's limit his innings, and we'll see you in 2020. Can you not see that happening? I sure could. And speaking of big deals, Mike Trout, 430. I mean, the guy has been top two vote-getter for the MVP in the American League six to seven years. <laughs> Listen, and even there's people that have written on ESPN saying that he is not only deserving of that money, but it's even a bargain. Considering the new TV deal with Fox West for the Angels and the Dodgers, I believe it's what, the next 20 some odd years, you know, $3 billion. So they have enough money, they can afford it. So good for Trout. He deserves it. I understand it's an exorbitant amount of money. But when you look at what he's done here in the first seven years of his career, and he's going to turn 28 this year, and granted that right, you would think by the time he hits 35, that contract is going to be probably not going to be worth it. 
But the next seven years, I'm sure he's going to have monster years, you would think, if he's healthy. So, and he's the face of that franchise. And he's going to be a lock hall of famer if all goes well. So why not pay the man? Because if for whatever reason he went out in the market and got that money, whether it was in Philadelphia, New York, whatever it may be, Angel fans, we might as well just pack them and go home. That's it. What else do we have here? NBA. Yeah, Celtics, what could you say? Uh, listen, they've lost four in a row. They feel like come the postseason, they're going to be able to turn it on. Right now, they're looking at best as a four seed. I, I don't have anything else to say about this team other than, all right, let's just get to that first round and let's see where it goes. Because this team has certainly underachieved. This team has had moments where it's looked dominant. But this team seems to be in disarray. Seems to be at a point where it's like, let's just get to the playoffs. And I think it's dangerous only because they're too young of a team. It's not Golden State. And I understand it's still dangerous even when you're a team like Golden State. When they lose to 35 against Dallas the other day. But at least you look at the Warriors and you say to yourself, well, they have a pedigree. They've won. They have a track record. What do the Celtics have? Celtics don't have that. Celtics right now, they feel like because of the young talent that they have and mixed with Kyrie and Gordon Hayward and Al Horford, that, oh, yeah, of course they're going to be there physically, but where are they going to be mentally, emotionally, psychologically come the start of the postseason? Do they even think that they could turn the switch on and feel as if they could go back to a conference final? Not only that, the competition is going to be a lot more tougher you know, last year they went tooth and nail to a seventh game against Milwaukee, where if they had better coaching, who knows? They probably could have beaten the Celtics in that series. And the Sixers, the same deal. But now this time they're going to go up against a much better Milwaukee team in the second round if they do beat Indiana in the first round. And we know Indiana's a pain in the neck. So... If that's what they choose to do, if they feel like come April 15th, whenever they tip off in game one, that they think that's it. We're going to go on and we're going to win these games 120 to 105, then I need to see it first in order for me to believe it. And as we come down the stretch here this NBA season, you know, you wonder when you look at a team like Golden State and you saw what happened the other day, can they turn on the switch? Can Denver be a threat? Can Oklahoma City be that team? Out west, and the East is compelling with just with those top five seeds because you got obviously you got a little Celtics in the mix. You know who's going to come out of that? As we're now anywhere between what eight to ten games away before the close of the season, which is the same for the NHL for that matter. Where the Islanders right now are a point behind the Capitals for first place in the metropolitan metropolitan division, and you want to get that first place division victory in the worst way because you don't want to play the Penguins in the first round which is what will happen if that's the case. And even worse, when the Penguins are nipping at their heels and if they somehow, way, overtake the Islanders, then guess what? The Islanders are going to have to go on the road to win that first-round series against the Penguins. And the schedule is not really in the Islanders' favor. Four of the last six games are on the road. They go to Columbus, then to Winnipeg before coming home to play Buffalo and Toronto, and then they finish at Florida and at Washington where the Penguins have a much easier schedule. They play the Rangers twice. They play the Hurricanes twice. Capitals, easy schedule for them. They do play Tampa over the course of the next six games, but they have a very favorable schedule, so the Islanders certainly have their work cut out for them if they want to win a division. And like I said, four of those six games on the road, 
Not going to be an easy venue, especially the first two. And obviously the last game in Washington. And in Buffalo and in Toronto, which I'm sure Toronto is going to be chomping at the bit to go back to the island to upstage what happened there last month on the island and then the first game in Toronto back in December. So you got that stuff to look at as far as the NHL is concerned. And then, listen, this is it. We close out the month of March in grand style. April, to me, and you're going to hear me say this again next week, is the best sports month of the year. I get October, you could argue that. We're finally through the dead zone. Obviously, when the tournament started, the dead zone was over. Because now you have your sights set on baseball, and then you look at what lies ahead in April. But just to recap, people, April, you have everything going. And what I mean by everything, you have Major League Baseball, of course, opening up. I get it's March, but let's face it. The Mets open up their home schedule next Thursday. So you still have a home opener that you're going to look forward to in the month of April. You have the NBA playoffs. You have the national championship game, which is April the 8th. You have the NHL playoffs. You have the Masters. That's right. The Masters kicks off the PGA circuit there as far as the four majors are concerned down in Augusta. You also have the NFL draft later on in the month. You got all those things to shake a stick at. Baseball. Basketball and baseball, basketball and hockey playoffs. A national championship game. The Masters. NFL. Uh, what more do you want? You have it all right there. And hopefully spring blossoms into 70 to 75 degree days. You can finally put those jackets into the closet. You could break out the short sleeves. God willing, some shorts. And you have a couple of months you could chew on some playoff action. Who's going to be crowned the champion in both of those sports? You have the run of the roses in May. You have your triple crown if you're into the horse racing. All that. So now we're finally out of the dead zone doldrums. And now fasten your seatbelts as we thrust into April with everything that's happening in college basketball, baseball, close out these NBA and NHL seasons, and away we go. So that's going to do it here this week. Next week will be April Fools, so we'll kick off another episode of j podcast as we do each and every Monday. Again, Thursday, you're going to have the baseball preview, which I'll pop up on Thursday, so keep your eyes and ears out for that. As always, people, I appreciate all of your participation, whether you go to the website at jreels.com to check out the latest content. Obviously, the bio about me, for those who are listening for the first time, you'll get more behind-the-scenes stuff as far as what I am and what I've done here over the last year, plus as far as the podcast is concerned with all the archive shows. You can also download the podcast or wherever you get your podcasts from, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spreaker, Stitcher, Spotify. Please feel free to leave a review, post a rating, all that stuff, because that's just going to increase the visibility with all the other sports podcasts that are out there in the universe and in turn will generate some visibility for the program and hopefully increase that with uh, some more listeners and potential future guests, things of that like. So I implore you to do that. Just take seconds. In fact, if you have an iPhone, you go Siri. Please play the J Reels podcast or Alexa, wherever you get your content from. And not only that, but speaking of which, you could also check me out on my social media sites, whether it's J Reels on Instagram, J Reels 1, just a number on Twitter, 
the J Reels Podcast on my Facebook page and also an email address, the J Reels Podcast at gmail.com. If you feel free to reach out, any questions, comments, criticism, praise, whatever it may be, as I deliver each and every week everything that's going on in the world of the diamond, the world of the ice, the world of the hardwood, the gridiron, golf course, racetrack, tennis court, you name it. From my lips to your ears, from my heart to your soul, from where I am to wherever you are, the J Reels Podcast always comes correct, direct, and in full effect. From the South Bronx, the South Beach, the South Central, the South Pacific, and all points beyond. Peace, love, and God bless everybody. And until Thursday, later on in the week here on the J-Rose Podcast, on the flip, baby.